my land and my people, the memoirs of His Holiness the Dalai Lama of Tibet. In these unique surroundings, I pursued my studies and also pursued my childish interests. I was always fascinated by mechanical things, but there was nobody who could tell me anything about them. When I was small, kind people who knew of this interest sometimes sent me mechanical toys such as cars and boats and airplanes. But I was never content to play with them for long. I always had to take them to pieces to see how they worked. Usually I managed to put them together again, though sometimes, as might be expected, they were disasters. I had a set of Meccano and I built cranes and railroad cars with it long before I had never seen such things. Later on, I was given an old movie projector which was operated by turning a handle and when I took that to pieces, I found the batteries which worked its electric light. This was my first introduction to electricity and I puzzled over the connections all alone until I found the way to make it go. I had a success, though this was later with my wristwatch. I took that entirely to pieces to study its principles and it still worked when I put it together again. In the Potala, each year began with a ceremony on the highest roof before sunrise on New Year's Day, a bitterly cold occasion when I was not the only one with longing of tea ceremony later in the morning, and religious activities continued day by day throughout the year until the great dance of the Lamas the day before New Year's Eve. But in the spring, I myself and my tutors and attendants at some of the government departments moved to Nobulenka in a procession which all the people of Lhasa came to see. I was always happy to go to the Nobulinka. The Potala made me proud of our inheritance of culture and craftsmanship, but the Nobulinka was more like a home. It was really a series of small palaces and chapels built in the large and beautiful walled garden. Nobulinka means the jewel park. It was started by the seven Dalai Lama in the 18th century and successive Dalai Lamas have added their own residences to it ever since. I built one there myself. The founder chose a very fertile spot. In the Nobulinga Gardens, we grew a radish weighing 20 pounds and cabbages so large you could not put your arms around them. There were poplars, willows, junipers and many kinds of flowers and fruit trees, apples, pears, peaches, walnuts and apricots. We introduced plums and cherry trees while I was there. There, between my lessons, I could walk and run among the flowers and orchards and the peacocks and the tame musk deer. There I played on the edge of the lake and twice nearly drowned myself. And there also in the lake I used to feed my fish which would rise to the surface expectantly when they heard my footsteps. I do not know now what has happened to the historical marvels of the Potala. Thinking about them, I sometimes also wonder whether my fish were so unwise as to rise to the surface when they heard 
the boots of the Chinese soldiers in the noble Linka. If they did, they have probably been eaten. One of the minor pleasures of the Nobelinga was that it had a motor generator for electric light, which often broke down so that I had every excuse to take it to pieces. From that machine I discovered how internal combustion engines work and also noticed how the dynamo created a magnetic field when it turned and I must say that I managed to mend it more often than not. I tried to make use of this knowledge on three old motor cars, the only ones in Lhasa. There were two 1927 baby Austins, one blue and the other red and yellow, and a large Dodge of 1931, painted orange. They had been presented to my predecessor and carried over the Himalayas in pieces and then reassembled. However, they had never been used since his death and had stood and been allowed to rust. I longed to make them work. At last I found a young Tibetan who had been trained as a driver in India and with my eager assistance he managed to put the Dodge in working order and also one of the Austins by borrowing parts from the other. These were exciting moments. I was curious also about the affairs of the world outside Tibet, but naturally much of that curiosity had to go unsatisfied. I had an atlas and I pored over maps of distant countries and wondered what life was like in them. But I did not know anyone who had ever seen them. I started to teach myself English out of books because Britain was the only country beyond our immediate borders with which we had friendly ties. My tutors read in a Tibetan newspaper, which was published in Kalimpong in India, of the progress of the Second World War, which started in the year I was taken to Lhasa. And they told me about it. Before the end of the war, I was able to reach such accounts myself, but few world events affected us in Lhasa. I have sometimes been asked if we followed with interest the attempts of the British to climb Mount Everest. I cannot say that we did. Most Tibetans have to climb too many mountain passes to have any wish to climb higher than they must. And the people of Lhasa, who sometimes climb for pleasure, chose hills of a reasonable size and when they came to the top, burned incense, said prayers and had picnics. This is a pleasure I also enjoy when I have an opportunity. All in all, it was not an unhappy childhood. The kindness of my teachers will always remain with me as a memory I shall cherish. They gave me the religious knowledge which has always been and will always be my greatest comfort and inspiration and they did their best to satisfy what they regarded as a healthy curiosity in other matters. But I know that I grew up with hardly any knowledge of worldly affairs and it was in that state when I was 16 that I was called upon to lead my country against the invasion of communist China.